The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Luke 14 is where we're going to be. Verses 1 through 24 is where we're going to cover. And let me tell you what's really annoying about Jesus. I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but here's what's really difficult. Here's something Jesus does that if we're all being really honest about it, we don't like it. Jesus has this way of constantly trying to get to the heart of issues, of straight up pursuing the heart of issues. And if we're being honest, usually we don't really like that. We'd rather just deal with stuff. Rather than getting to the heart of things that's going on, I would rather, many times in my life, just deal with the peripheral things that are going on on the outside, and let's just like leave the heart of the issue alone. Let me give you guys an example. Oftentimes, the heart that Jesus is poking at that is so uncomfortable for us tends to deal with the issue of self-worship, and I, I, I'll share you with one with you of my own personal life. So some years ago, as I was pastoring here, um, I ended up sort of in a place where I, was just, I, I just wasn't operating and serving and really just living in a super healthy way. I was, I was kind of approaching even leadership in the church and, and service to people in the church in a way that was super unhealthy, and I was absolutely wearing myself out. I was killing myself. I was operating in just really unhealthy ways. I had anxiety shooting through the roof. I was exhausted all the time. Never felt like I was actually getting anywhere. I was constantly worried that I was letting other people down and constantly trying to figure out how I was going to get the other stuff done, and it was just sort of a mess. And so I spent some time with this guy who was a, a really wise, really godly man who's um, older, more seasoned, more experienced than me. And we just spent some time just talking through a lot of that kind of stuff. And what I would have rather have had from him was a, Jeff, man, hold on, just chill. Here's what you need to do. Number one, do this. Number two, do this. Number three, do this. Number four, don't do this. Number five, stop doing this and just have some things to do and I'd have been fine. That's not what he did at all. What he did instead is he started going, why do you do that? And that's an annoying question. Because when you start getting to the heart of some of these things, what he exposed in me, he was like, Jeff, here's the thing, dude. You're looking at like ministry and all these kind of things. What, whatever. You know what the truth is? You're a self-worshipper. Like you will claim that you're doing these things for Jesus, but honestly, you're doing it more for yourself than you are for Jesus because you're more worried about what people are going to think of you if you let them down. And you're more worried about what if someone leaves because they're mad at you because you didn't do this. And how are you going to do this? And you're operating in such a way. And you, it's all under the guise of like ministry and godly things. But the reality is your heart in these things isn't exactly where it's supposed to be. You're actually serving and worshiping and taking care of yourself in these things. You just put a choir robe on it and you're trying to fool yourself into believing that it's something Christian. I hated those conversations. For a while anyway. This is true. Very often, God wants to work on things in our heart, and we would prefer to stay on surfacey things. Like, well, let's just, let's not get too deep here. I'll, let's just do this, Jesus. I'll do this. I'll go to church more, and I'll pray more, and I'll read my Bible more, and I'll give more, and I'll do all these different things more and more and more. But, but leave the heart alone, if you would, Jesus. I'll, I'll deal with that. Let's not get too deep here. Let's just worry about all of these other things that I need to be doing, because that's what counts, Right? The problem with that, though, is the Bible. Like, take a look, if you will, at Isaiah 1, verse 11 through 17. We've got a slide for this. Isaiah 1 says this. This is God speaking through a prophet to the people of Israel. And when it talks about the things that you're doing, the surfacey stuff, take a look at what he says. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? 
I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before your eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Now I want you to look at this a second. He's telling the people of Israel, listen guys, I am done with your feasts, I am done with your worship. I am done with all of this stuff. And the reason is your hearts are wicked. Your hearts are sinful. They are far from me. You're doing all the stuff that you're supposed to do, but you're not doing it out of an actual heart of worship because there is iniquity. There's blood on your hands, he might say. You're not actually worshiping me. And I'm tired of it. And then he says what? He says, so clean yourself up, wash yourself. Now, most of us who grew up in the church, most religious-minded people, when we hear, wash yourselves, clean yourselves, what would we think to do? Okay, well, we'll start doing everything right. We've got to fix everything. We've got to start doing stuff. But the problem is he's talking about this worship stuff. He's talking about the actual things that would seem to be the things that you're doing right. And they're already doing those things. So what do you do? How do you fix that? I mean, too often we deal with the brokenness that's inside us by religion. Okay, I've sinned this week. I better go to church this weekend. Okay, I messed up here, but I'll make up for it, and I'll do this, and I'll do this, and I'll stop doing this, and I'll stop doing this. And, but the problem is this. All of those things tend to be just those outward symptomatic things. They don't actually get to the issue of the heart as to why this is coming out in the first place. And the Bible does not give us the freedom to ignore that. The Bible over and over and over pushes on the heart. It talks about protecting the heart for out of it spring the life. Like everything we do is actually sourced somewhere. And instead we would rather have just a list of, okay, I'm doing these things wrong. If I just do these things right, it's way more comfortable to just change the external action rather than deal with going on in the heart. So what do we do? That's the beauty of the very next verse in Isaiah 1. Verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And the heart of the gospel is an issue of the heart. The gospel teaches us that our hearts are broken and deceptively wicked, but that Jesus has come that we might have a new heart, that he might put his spirit in us, that he wants to deal with something that is genuinely broken. It's not as simple as, oh, here's just some actions that are going on and you need to do differently. It's like, no, there's something in us that's absolutely broken and we need to change, we need to fix that. And it's Jesus is the one who comes and does that for us. 
So Jesus is always pursuing the heart, as uncomfortable as that often is. And that's the issue here in this particular text. What we're going to be looking at in verses 1 through 24 of Luke 14 is these parables, these stories um, concerning banquets. Now, this is not the section of Scripture that teaches us the right and wrong way to do banquets. That's not the point. If you go into the back of your Bible, like, where's the banquet section? Like, that's not the point of this. So there's got to be something different going on. And Jesus is a wonderful teacher. One of the beauties of Jesus' method of discipleship is that he uses real life. He uses the situations that he's in, and he talks about things that are going on, and he uses them as a way to, to kind of point us in the right direction, to point us to where it is that we're to go. And that's what's going to happen here. And it starts yet again with a meal with the Pharisees. So in verse 1, because it's first, Luke 14, one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Okay, a couple things here. First of all, this scene is super sketchy. Can Can I first of all just point out the graciousness and the mercy and the patience of Jesus Christ here? Because if you've been tracking with us, Man, he's been going back and forth with these Pharisees for a while now. And they're constantly after him. They're constantly trying to trap him. They're setting a trap for him again right now to try to bust him. Like they are, there's this constant friction. And if Jesus was anything like me, and can I get an amen that it's a good thing he's not? But if he was anything like me, he would just be like, you know what? I'm done with you guys and I'm going somewhere else. And yet here he is again at dinner with these guys, with these Pharisees, these religious leaders at the time. So he's having this meal with them, and in comes a guy who has dropsy. Now, you football fans, that is not fumbleitis. That is not what dropsy means. Um, Dropsy is actually a really, really serious medical condition. Um, It actually comes from a Greek word meaning that, that is hydros, which means water. And dropsy is actually a medical condition in which your body is retaining water in a super unhealthy way. Now, here's the thing about dropsy. Remember a minute ago, we talked about the idea that a lot of times the things we're doing are symptoms of the brokenness inside our hearts, right? Well, one of the things about dropsy is the issue with dropsy, or I think the medical, modern medical term, if I'm pronouncing this right, is edema. Does that sound right, Jonathan? Edema? There we go. Cardiac doctor. Oh, I just gave it away. Here's the issue. The issue with dropsy is not the water retention. If it was, they would just drain the water and all is good. But the issue with dropsy is that it is a symptom of a much more significant issue. Two of the things that it could be, one of them is renal failure, and the other is congenitive or congestive heart failure. And so as the heart begins, the heart is broken, the heart stops operating the way it's designed to operate, and then one of the symptoms that can occur is this issue of dropsy. So you become absolutely bloated, there's water retention, you become, if it goes far enough, disfigured, it definitely builds up like in the legs and the ankles, and it's a horrible, horrible condition that can be a symptom showing that there's actually something absolutely fatal going on on the inside. That this symptom out here is not the real issue, the real issue is the heart. So it just so happens that that's the condition that comes walking in the door in this text, right? God knows what he's doing, amen? So this guy comes in, but here's the question. If you have been tracking with us, you know this about the Pharisees. What do they think about people with issues like this? Are they super kind to them? Are they tending to hang around with people with disfigurements and whatnot? Absolutely not. 
They would look at someone in this case, especially if it's been going on for a while and God hasn't healed it, they would say, this is a symptom, this is a, this is a sign that there's, you, you are enduring God's disfavor. Something is wrong with you, you are unclean. And they would want to distance themselves from a man like this. So a man in a condition like this would be someone who maybe, if it's extended long enough, is basically a beggar at this point, excluded from society, excluded from this religious society, this high honor society that they're all a part of. This guy would be a mess, which means the question is, why is he in the high priest's house? Or the ruler of the Pharisees, I should say, what's he doing there? They would never have a guy there unless hey, we're going to have Jesus over for a meal and I've got an idea. Somebody go down there and get that nasty dude down there that we excluded. Go get him and bring him in. I've got an idea. We're going to set a trap. Same kind of trap they've set for Jesus over and over, but I guess they they don't have Wikipedia. They haven't learned how Jesus operates in these things yet. So they're going to try to set the trap again. And so here's this guy. It is a completely sketchy situation. Here's a man likely with a heart condition and Jesus is going to use this situation to point out that the one who really has a broken and heart that is in need of healing is not just the man with dropsy, but it's actually the, the religious leaders that are in that place at that time. And so he's going to point out this issue of their hearts by addressing three other H's, if you like, uh, Baptist-y, three H kind of sermons here. He's going to talk about their hypocrisy, their lack of humility, and their misguided hospitality. So the first one is their hypocrisy. In verse 3, Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And then he took him and he healed him and he sent them away. Now, again, they're setting Jesus up to see if he's going to heal on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is that day of rest that God had given the people of Israel. We've covered this at great length over the last few weeks, so you can go back and get a little more in-depth uh, information on that. But it's, it's modeled after the fact that God, when he created the heavens and the earth, he spent six days in creation and one day at rest. And then God commanded his people, hey, I want you to take one day and it's going to be set aside on the Sabbath as a day of rest. It's a gift to the people of Israel. Stop working. Think about it. God could have made it where we just work every single day. Well, but we need rest. Well, he could have been like, well, yeah, but you're going to sleep every single night. Well, most of you. So you can sleep at night. You can get a rest, but you need to work every day. But instead, God is gracious. And he says, no, there's going to be a day of rest. I want you to reflect on my goodness. I want you to reflect on me and understand me. I want you to abstain from that kind of work and just focus on me. It was a gift to the people. But the problem is a lot of times things that are being given to people as gifts and blessings, once they get into the hand of religion and the heart of that religion is far from God, they become burdens and they become difficult. And so what the religious leaders did is they started going, okay, well, what does it mean to work on the Sabbath and not work on the Sabbath? Let's start creating some rules. And so they started creating all sorts of rules, all sorts of definitions about what it looks like and what is allowed and what isn't allowed. And then these hypocrites, they started creating their own ways of circumnavigating their own rules that had painted them into a corner. So for example, if you had livestock, can you water your livestock on a given day? Are you allowed to do that? Well, livestock's really important. It's an agrarian society. So livestock is like your wealth. Well, you need to water it. You need to take care of it. That's an important investment. Okay, but how far can we travel if we need to leave it to lead it to water? What if the well's a long ways? Someone did some math somewhere, don't know how they figured it out, and they decided a little under one-sixth of a mile, that's what's allowed. Okay, what if you live too far away? 
What if the, the high priest or some religious guy got this new house and then he's like, oh no, we didn't do the math. Now we're one-eighth of a mile away from the well and we're going to end up breaking the law if we take the animal. What are we going to do? And so they would literally go build lean-tos, like dumpy little shacks even right next to the well and they would call it their second dwelling. And that way, no, we didn't go away from the home. Our home's right here. We haven't traveled more than one-sixth of a mile from our house. And so they found these really hypocritical ways because they would judge people for working on the Sabbath and then create rules in which they could circumnavigate the rules in order to get away with things. It was just a ridiculous way. And so this is what they would be doing. And so the, these, these laws became completely unbearable. And so they're setting Jesus up to say, okay, let's see. Is he going to heal on the Sabbath? That's work. But then again, if he doesn't heal on the Sabbath, well, it turns out he's not quite as gracious and compassionate as all the rumors out there circulating around at the time uh, make him out to be. Either way, we got him. So Jesus knows this. And so when this happens and everybody's watching, is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? He just kind of turns to them and says, so what do you think I should do? What do you think? Is it allowed? Can I heal him or can I not? And they can't say anything. Because the whole trap's set up so that there isn't a right answer coming out of that. So they're silent. Totally silent. So he heals this man, sends him out on his way, and then he says this, verse 5. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox? Weird combination, right? Which of you guys having a kid or a cow that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Say, Jeff, what's that all about? Well, their laws and all, their religion, religion ha, religious rules have a way of painting you into the corner sometimes, like I said. And so they would find ways to get around them. They just make more laws that go, oh, but you can do this. One of them was there were certain times that you could do certain amounts of work in extreme situations. One of them was if your f- son falls into a well, you're allowed to get him out. If your cow fell into a well, you're not allowed to get him out. But when you get your son out of a well, you're not allowed to use a rope or a ladder because those are tools and that looks like work. It's ridiculous. I don't know how they would do that. I just picture guys like all holding on to each other's ankles, lowering somebody down. I, I don't know really how they would do that. But the, guy, the idea is, if, okay, it's an emergency. Your son fell in. You can get him out. Your cow fell in. No, you can't get him out. But here's the thing. Agrarian society, cattle is wealth. And they've done this. I mean, Jesus is even pointing it out to him. Hey, if your cow fell in a well, you'd deal with it, wouldn't you? So like for us, like imagine it's Sunday and you're not supposed to work because this is the Lord's day and you get an email today that says, by the way, your bank account is suddenly empty and we don't know why, but you can't call them until tomorrow because it's Sunday. You're going to make the call, right? Who among us would not make the phone call? That's the true reality. And so this is the issue. It's not just that it's a cow. This is their wealth. This is their income. And he's like, of course you're going to do that. Your income is in the well. You're going to dig that out. You're going to go take care of that because that's something of incredible value to you. So what is it that he's pointing out? What is he saying? He's saying, listen, you'll cheat your own laws to go rescue your own wealth and your own well-being. But you're going to bring this guy, 
this outcast in society that you show no compassion to another, you're going to bring him into the house and, and in hopes that I either heal him and then I get in trouble or I don't heal him and you can show how uncompassionate I am. You have no compassion for him whatsoever. This is a guy that you would exclude. You're going to take advantage of him like this and bring him in here, but you would then cheat the law to go rescue your own income. Is that what you're going to do? He's pointing out the hypocrisy, the fact that their hearts, though they might be able to say we are following the law, their hearts and what's going on, the reality of their motives inside are far from him and far from God. And so they can't reply to that because they know. Now, Jesus has this awesome way of when he asks questions and nobody wants to answer, he has no problem continuing the conversation on his own. And so he does that right here, verse 7. Again, I told you, it's one of those things he just won't let it go. And so he begins to push in, and look at verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now there's some cultural stuff going on here. Seating at a meal was a really big deal. Sometimes I feel like in our family that can be the case. You ever go to a restaurant and you spend about 15 minutes trying to figure out who's going to sit where when you go out to dinner? It was super complicated at this time because this was an issue of honor. So these people lived in a society where honor meant everything. Your honor and your position in society determined the jobs that you could kind of have, the people that you could, that you could marry. It, it determined all sorts of things. And so when they would have a meal like this, they would arrange the tables in a U-seat. And this is an, an artist's depiction of the Last Supper. So if you look at the U, the bottom of the U in the center is the seat. That's the host. That's the most important guy there. In this scene, that's Jesus there breaking bread in this So the bottom of the U, right in the middle, is the guy. So the the ruler of the Pharisee would be sitting there. And then from that point down, it kind of becomes this hierarchy, like the lower down you go, the further away you go from that spot, the lower in that social order you stand. And so that determined all sorts of things. It would determine the kind of food that you have, all this kind of stuff. So, so think with me for just a minute. Those of you that know, you know the story where the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, comes to Jesus. And the mom says, Jesus, will you grant me this? That in your kingdom, my son can sit what? One on your left hand, one on your right hand in the kingdom of God. That, what that means is, can you put them in the highest positions of honor? So one would be on one side and one would be on the other. This is what she's asking for. And then think of Jesus' response. Um, are, the, are you able to drink of the cup that I will drink? He's saying, is that what you want? Because in a position like this, now it's kind of like being in an airplane. First class is having filet mignon and we're in the back with like peanut butter and yogurt. You know that? So, so that can happen here in these meals. The people in the positions of honor are oftentimes eating a completely different meal than the other people at the table because it's supposed to show their position. And so Jesus is saying, okay, you want the same cup that I'm about to drink? Because he knows he's about to drink literally the cup of the wrath of God as he goes to the cross. And then what is it he says? He says, actually, you will 
drink of the cup that I have because he knows that the disciples one day will also follow in that and they will end up dying um, in, in many ways, the very similar ways to the way that Jesus did himself. So this is what we're talking about here, right? So Jesus comes to this meal and he watches the ruler of the high priest is obviously going to be the one to sit in the middle at the bottom of the U, if you will. And then he's watching all of these other guys, these scribes and Pharisees who are their whole lives are built on fighting for position. And he's watching them come into those different positions. He's like, guys, what are you doing? Think about it. You guys are coming in here and you're fighting. I want to be in that spot and that spot and that spot and that spot. He's pointing out an issue that's going on with their hearts. It's the same issue of self-worship. It's this idea of they want to be in the positions of honor. And he's saying, listen, it is better to be humble, to humble yourself and sit at the end of the table. And then if the host comes in and he says to you, no, why are you sitting there? Come on up here. Come on up here. Then you, in front of everyone, you're being exalted up to the positions of honor. Instead, the people who have fought for the front, he might come and say, hey, um, this is awkward, but um, I invited Bill, so you got to scoot down. Um, And Steve, so scoot down again. Um, and Benjamin, in fact, why don't you just go ahead and sit all the way down? That's a comfy spot right down there. Just scoot on down. In that culture, that would be so much shame to have to get up from that position. Like shame more, bear, or more unbearable than death in many cases. To have to get up and demote yourself and come down to that spot. And he's telling them, look, you, your hearts are so prideful. I read a story of this famous English writer, uh, I believe his name was Thomas Hardy, if I'm remembering it correctly, and he became such a big deal in England that newspapers and, and stuff were just clamoring to get anything he could write and to publish it. Like they would have taken, if he would have given it to him, they would have taken his grocery list and put it on the cover of their newspapers because he was so popular. But when he would submit writings to either publishers or to the newspapers, his practice was anything he submitted, he sent a self-addressed stamped envelope along with it because he made the assumption from the beginning they might not like this and they shouldn't have to pay to send it back to me like that's humility instead of going I'm a big deal I'll just go to understand man I humility and he's pushing on this with these guys because these guys are walking into the room with the mentality that everyone else is subservient to them Remember this, their mentality, everyone else in the room is beneath them and even exists to serve and support them. That's their mentality. And so he pushes on this. Now, the one guy who's not getting hammered by this point in this particular story is who? The ruler of the Pharisees, because it's his house and his seat's already established. He doesn't have to fight for, for position. He's there. So he's off the hook, right? Oh no, Jesus has something for everybody. Look at verse 12. And he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or brothers or relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, for those of you 
that hold to this, I believe in an absolute, literal interpretation of every word of the Bible. You have a problem here. Though you might actually like it when it comes to like, oh, so every meal I don't invite family? Sweet, whatever that is. But there's a problem here because clearly that's not what this means. Again, it's not about banquets. Banquets is what he's using to illustrate the point. In fact, there are other texts that talk about throwing celebrations where you're inviting your friends, where you're inviting your family. So that can't be what he means. What is it that he's actually talking about? This is an issue of the heart. He's saying to the guy at the table, by the way, you're self-worshipping also. Because when you're inviting people here, look at who you're inviting. You're inviting the who's who. You're inviting people that look, make you look good. You're not a going out. The, the guy with drops, he's been out there for years. You've not invited him in here. You're inviting people that serve your position, that serve your, your prestige, people that you can come and serve, and they'll all think, what a host he was. I can't believe I got to go to dinner at so-and-so's house. That's what you're doing. It's self-worship also. You think you're fooling yourselves into thinking that you're serving these guys by feeding them, but you're really feeding yourself. You're feeding your ego, and you're feeding your pride. Now pause for a minute in the story. This is the part that none of us are going to like. The problem with these passages when we get to these stories is we don't think this is about us. Because we've been watching Jesus versus the Pharisees for a really long time. And we, especially those who would believe ourselves to be, who claim to be followers of Christ, we are Christians who have been saved by him. We read these stories and we see good guys and bad guys. Jesus is good guy and we are solidly on team Jesus. So if we were to insert ourselves into the story, we can fool ourselves into thinking we would be standing behind Jesus going, yep, woe unto you and woe unto you and woe unto you. But this isn't about us. Okay, let's see. Think about this. Think about the position of the people as these guys there are, are finding themselves or viewing themselves as being superior to others and, and others are subservient to them and the pride and all the things going on there. So think about this. Let me ask you a question. Us, a question, because I'm with you in this, okay? Do you see people when you're out and about? And what I mean by that is like people, when, when you interact with people outside the walls of the church, when you interact with people in a restaurant, when you interact with people in other places, do you see people with souls and emotions and struggles and hurts who deal with some of the same kind of hurdles you do? Or do you sometimes have a tendency to view all the other people out there as actually being subservient to you? Or maybe that they actually exist, especially in situations, to serve you. Like when you go to the restaurant and the waitress who's serving your food at the table, what do you see? I mean, in that setting, is she no different or is he no different than if it were to be a robot that just exists to bring your food, set it down, and make sure everything you have is happy and really, really take care of you. And if they do so well, you will bless them. And if not, we got a comment card we're going to fill out. Or do we look at them as people, like with souls, who might be having a bad day, who might be going through some stuff, who might be hurting just like you are, just like we are. Do they exist for us, or are they actual people? And you go, well, Jeff, come on, waitresses and waiters. I mean, that's their job. Okay, 
Let's use a different one. When you're driving, have you ever, on accident of course, have you ever accidentally pulled out in front of anyone? You've been running late and you're just trying to get there and you're distracted and you're not on your phone, of course not texting your boss to tell him that you're running late or any of those kind of things because we'd never do such a thing. But as we're coming out and we're sort of late and you pulled out in front of someone and the car comes up behind you and they're just on the horn and they're making hand gestures and all of that kind of stuff to you and you're just like, look, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. But then flip it. You ever been driving somewhere and you had the car pull out in front of you Does the mentality change? Do you give that driver the same grace you wish the other driver would give you? Is anyone else allowed to have a bad day but you? Is anyone else allowed to be struggling in a given moment and receive grace because of it but you? Or do we instantly go to anger? Do we instantly go to self-defense? Do we instantly go to, I don't deserve to be treated that way? That's self-worship, and that reaction against that is because they have committed blasphemy against us. And that's the difference between looking at people as objects to get to where you want to be or people that exist just to serve you or being able to look at the world in a completely different way to understand that as the kingdom of God is laid out by Jesus he says it's the last that are first that he himself didn't come to be served but to serve and instead of clamoring for the first position at the table we understand that we are part of a kingdom that is inverted and we go to the bottom we're all guilty of this at times aren't we and it doesn't always feel really good. And so then when that happens, we are, when we identify that brokenness, a lot of times we just want to go, no, but hold on, hold on, I host a Bible study. Or I, I, I went to church. Or I give. Or I, we have this mentality, or we can, where then we just play the scales and go, no, I'm different than them. But no such scales exist. It's not an issue of the outside circumstances. Jesus wants to deal with our hearts. You go, no, but I'm, I'm not that guy. I'm a pretty good guy. Okay, well, let's think about the good things that we do. Like, just use like a, I don't know, a generic, what's the word, cliched kind of example of, say, you're at the grocery store, and you see an older lady who's trying to get her groceries to the car, and she's struggling, and so you come in like a good Boy Scout or whatever the case may be, and you're going to help her carry her bags to the car like a good person, right? You ever think about how you feel? You ever noticed the kind of things that you start to feel inside as you're doing some of that kind of stuff? Like, oh, she must really like me right now. And why wouldn't she? I'm delightful. Look at me. When I get to the car, she's probably going to try to tip me, and I will say no. <laughs> Even that fuels this, this thing about our worth and our identity and our importance and who we are. And the Bible doesn't allow us that. The Bible says that our hearts are tricky, that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. It says, who can know it? And that's a rhetorical question, meaning you don't even understand the depth of wickedness and depravity that we have in our own hearts. We're broken. And even the good things that we do, the external things that we do, because behind all of it is a broken heart, even those things, as the Bible says, are are filthy rags, those kinds of acts of righteousness apart from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you go, well, Jeff, thanks. Smoky week. I was so hoping I'd come to church and feel worse about myself. Here's the good news. 
it's good to be in those places. And this is what I mean by that. The Bible actually does this in lots of different areas. It's not just pride checks. Over and over and over, the Bible gives us little diagnostic tools and asks us, hey, consider these things and check the condition of your heart. Paul even tells us that we are not to ignore the hard work of understanding the motives of our own heart and where we are with regards to our relationship with God. So uh, just some examples that the Bible gives us for doing this, like affection for God. Like, do we have any? Like, for, forget the fact that you're at church. Forget the fact that you sang in the previous song, Jesus, we love you. Is that true? I know you sang it, and I know you're here, but like, is there actual emotion and love for God? Um, the Bible talks about money. We were just there a few chapters ago. The Bible talks about, hey, how your money gets used is a diagnostic tool to understand who it is or what it is that you worship. Our resources and what we do with them expose things that are going on inside our heart. And another one is how we treat others. I mean, look at uh, 1 John 2, verse 9 through 11. 1 John 2 says this, Whoever says he is in light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So he's saying, look, one of the things that is an evidence of the fact that you're part of the kingdom of God and walking in the light is the way that you treat others will be affected by that. And if you treat others as a constant resource, like you're, they are all subservient to you, they all exist to make your life better, if that's the way you treat people, then you need to understand that you have been blinded by that darkness because that is not a characteristic of those who are followers of Jesus. And there's lots of those kind of diagnostics in the scripture. And they're super, super uncomfortable. Amen? It's true. So what do we do with that? Well, here's the good news. The Bible doesn't call us to a place of like self-flagellation or, or beating ourselves or, or, well, I just need to know I'm just a mess and then I just need to hate myself. No, no, no. The Bible uses this as a kickoff point to get to the place where actual healing occurs. So a self-awareness of the brokenness inside our heart and our need for help is the starting point for a really, really good thing. Look what Jesus says, verse 14, or excuse me, verse 15 in chapter 14. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, it's good to know the other guys have a Peter too. So, you know, Peter is that guy who will just take moments where he should just keep his mouth shut and he'd be way better off by not saying anything, and yet he opens his mouth and begins talking anyway. Well, they apparently they have one too. Because here they are all sitting at the table. Jesus has called out their hypocrisy. He's called out all this stuff to them. And all of them, no doubt, are sitting there. I don't imagine too many people are just digging into their food in that moment or any of that kind of stuff. They're all just sort of sitting there. And then one guy just chimes in. Uh, this is awkward. It's really quiet. Uh, say something good. Say something good. Uh, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is like, kingdom of God, I'm glad you brought that up. Let's talk about that. Verse 16, but he said to them, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. Remember, it's not about banquets. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Okay, let's quick pause for just a minute. Here's a wedding, wedding, feast, banquet, 
awesome opportunity in an honor society where people are thumping their own chests and kind of pointing out their own greatness, awesome opportunity to display said greatness in front of everyone else around, right? So there's going to be a wedding. And the invitation goes out, and it's like, hey, the wedding feast is here. Everything's ready. Come on in. And then they begin to make excuses. An invitation from the analogy here is that God has extended an invitation. And as often happens, when we know God's calling us to something, there can be a, well, hold on. There's some excuses why I don't need to be there. This isn't really about me. This isn't a good time for me. This isn't whatever the case may be. Human nature has been the same for a really, really long time. So the first person, it says, they all began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Okay, agrarian society where you made a lot of your money that way, you bought a field and you didn't see it. You just blindly bought a field. You haven't seen it. And you got to go right now? Excuses. Then he goes on. Please have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Again, you bought five yoke of oxen. That's your wealth. And you didn't even look at it, and you can't come to the wedding feast now because you've got excuses. And then another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. You can't take, anybody that's married, man, you know you take your wife to that banquet. Amen, guys? Can't do that? Like they're just, they're just excuses as to why they don't need to respond to the invitation that's been given. Now, this is not about banquets. He's telling them a story. What's the story? God created Israel and he blessed them with an invitation for fellowship, an invitation to be part of his kingdom, to be an ambassador nation to the rest of the world. And he promised that the Messiah is coming. But over time, they became way more interested in their own things, their own self-interest, their own wealth, their own position, all of these things. And so now the Messiah has come, and they're refusing to acknowledge the fact that the one they've been waiting for all along is here. And so the invitation is being refused. He's saying this to the leaders who are not only themselves refusing, but they've been leading the entire nation in that same direction as well. So how does this go? Verse 21 So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Who responded to the call of Jesus? Who were the ones that believed? Who were the ones that put their faith in him? It was oftentimes the marginalized people of society. The guys like the guy with dropsy. The ones that all the other people are too important to touch and can't have anything to do with and looking down on and thinking themselves as better than, the invitation then went to them. And those are the people who came. And that makes sense because what has Jesus taught? I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. He says, I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, but to the sinners. He's like, look, these are the people that needed help. And these are the ones I went to. The others that go, well, I got things under control and I got more things going on. I got stuff that I've got to do. The invitation bypassed them. And then look what it goes on to say. Verse 22. And the servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done. There's still room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Who's writing this? Luke. Luke then goes on to write what? The book of Acts. What's the book of Acts about? How the gospel invitation 
begins to spread outside of just Jerusalem, but into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He's telling them the history and the eventual fate even of their own people. He's like, you don't understand what you're doing. Now, that's what he's saying to them. Now, to us, think about this. If you're in that place, you go through the word and you hit these places where, man, there's this stuff about pride and there's this stuff about humility and there's these, these diagnostics about what is our affection for God like and how are we using our money and all of these kind of things. There is a way to go about those where you get to those different places and you just go, ugh, and you feel conviction and you feel bad about yourself that can lead into like condemnation and even self-hate, which we cannot bear forever. And if you continually feel bad about yourself and you have nowhere to go with your help, sooner or later you got to do something about it. So you either crumble or you start making other excuses, finding other ways to balance things out to make yourself think, I'm not so bad. But if it's just conviction, and if that conviction about the things that are brokenness, broken in us lead us to Jesus, then I have good news because he came for the broken. Like when... When you come across things in Scripture and you're like, man, I'm failing in that and and I'm struggling with that and I, I don't know what to do about that, there's great news. That's why Jesus came. And the mentality that goes, so I've got to get that all figured out or Jesus is going to be bad, going to be mad at me and I don't know what to do. No, I would say you run with that to Jesus and say, help. Help me. Help me with this. I'm, I'm weak and I'm broken and I'm struggling. And Jesus would say, that's why I came. That's why he would teach in the very Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So many times these diagnostic tools that the scriptures give us that point out things in our heart can be things that we want to avoid because they make us feel bad. Be careful of that. That might be self-worship taking control. Because we don't want to feel bad. And we want to feel good about ourselves. Instead, when we see those things, we need to understand, man, I, I'm, that's true. I'm struggling in that. And I'm broken in that. And I don't understand that. But praise God. Jesus is merciful. The same Jesus who would put up with dinner after dinner after dinner with those Pharisees has been putting up with you for years. He's pursuing you even as you read these things right now because he's gracious and loves you and is pursuing you. And so that shouldn't lead to depression. It should lead to joy. The church is filled with people that are prideful, hypocrites who fail all the time. It's the biggest criticism against the church out there, right? The church is full of hypocrites. And our response should be, I know, and he loves us anyway. That's crazy, because that's the truth of the gospel. And then as we love him, and he puts his spirit in us, and he begins to work in us, that's when he starts to change. He changes our hearts. He starts to do the diagnostics so that maybe the things on the peripheral start to change over time, Lord willing. And then one day the kingdom is going to come, and there won't be these struggles anymore. One day, those who have humbled themselves before God and understood their brokenness, repented of their brokenness, and committed their faith to Jesus Christ, one day you're going to be exalted. You're sons and daughters of the Most High God. How do you get more exalted than that? It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. So don't run from self-examination. Don't run from these things like the Pharisees did. 
Because you either crumble or you have to get Jesus out of the way. And that's what they do, as we'll see. Amen? Let's all stand and I'll pray for you guys. Man, you guys should be blessed. I went five minutes late in the first service and now I'm five minutes early. God is good. Father, will you help us with these things? Help us, Lord, not to read the scriptures as if they're for somebody else. Help us to have the courage to be honest with who we are and the things that we're struggling with, but to understand the vast love you have for us. That conviction is a grace. That you're leading us towards something that is better. Help us to avoid, Lord, self-worship, whether it be in a form of self-exaltation or even just moping around and trying to beat ourselves up. Lord, instead, may we worship you. May our righteousness be found in you. May, our great, may your grace uh, sustain us as well as it saves us. And then, Father, I pray that we would be faithful, empowered by your Spirit, equipped to carry that message to the world around us to go into the community, to see people for who they are, to treat others as better than ourselves, as your word tells us to do, to be those who point to you, Jesus. Lord, give us an eye for the outcast, for the downtrodden, for the poor. Give us a heart for others, and give us, Lord, the ability from the very words on our mouth to the actions that we live. Lord, help us to live in such a way that points people to the hope and healing that is found only in you, Jesus. I ask God you would bless everyone here as they go. May our spirit, may your spirit empower us, Lord. May these things take root in our lives, change us, and make us more like you. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. I love you guys. Have a great, great week. God bless.